Come on, it doesn't hurt that much. <laughs> the punishment being meted out to this particular cow is that she is being branded. I'm Carla Cheffin. We dairy farm in Gittisham in Devon, and we run a herd of 500 dairy cows. Henceforward, her identity and who owns her will never be in doubt. Well, I mean, basically because we've got so many cows, you need a way to make them instantly recognisable and every cow needs to be unique. Of course, in the old days, you used to do it with um, hot branding, didn't they? Yeah. Must have hurt them, hasn't it? It's a little more friendly, I think. Yeah. It's a liquid nitrogen process. Basically, what the process does, it kills the pigment in the hair, so it's nice to have a nice, clear, big brand that's just completely indelible on that animal. This is hardly the Wild West. It's the gentler West, the West of England. But the question is the same. Are capital letters on words in any way analogous to brands on cattle? You can own a cow. Can you in any way own a word? Don't try to understand them. Just rope them, throw them, brand them. Soon we'll be living high and warm. Don't try to understand them. Just rope them, throw them, brand them. Well, here the analogy ends because we will be trying to understand them. Not cows, proper nouns, capital letters, and the linguistics of names. The proper word for which is onomastics. But the Wild West does supply some useful clues, as I only recently recalled while I was helping my cousin jack off a horse. Capital J, I hasten to add. Clearly, we are talking about written, not spoken English. We subjected our branding image to a lawyer, intellectual property expert, Sarah Ludlam. It's an interesting analogy for branding a cow and relating that then to um, branding of goods or services because the point of a trademark is to tell the world where you, those goods and services have come from and hopefully also indicate the quality of those goods and services. Brand is a marketing concept, uh, whereas trademark is the legal concept for the same thing. It's the word or logo which you put on your products or on your advertisements for your products to sell those products, all those services. And similarly with a cow, you're telling the world where that cow's come from. And if you could sell it as a genuine authorised seller, you'd get a very high price for it if it had a good brand on it. But if you have rustled it and are not authorised to sell it, uh, then you're going to be able to only sell it for a very small price. So you've increased the value of the hide by knowing the source and being able to rely on the brand. Rope them, throw them, brand them. I think, in fact, for my clients, it's the other way around. You brand them and then you worry about roping them and throwing them. Getting the trademark in place and making sure it's clear of anybody else's rights is a big part of investing sensibly in a new business. Good. We'll now introduce the Wild West test, pitting you, the listener, against two experts, a lexicographer, Stephen Bullen, and an onomastician, Professor Richard Coates, of the University of the West of England. Capital U, capital W, capital E, clearly. But, uh, Professor Coates, do you spell Wild West with caps? I would, yes. You would? I would. Because I think simply it's a place name, even if it can't be located exactly. It's as much of a place name as Europe. Right. Europe has vague borders, and the Wild West has vague borders, but it's still a place name, even if it's a mythological place. And in the Middle East? The Middle East, likewise. Yeah, yeah. That's I tend to be generous with capital letters. Oh, you do? Yeah. Places, for example, the places around Bath and Bristol. Now, Bath, of course, has given its name to all kinds of things in the English language that you wouldn't transfer 
um, to, to, to capitals, to majuscules, would you? You wouldn't take a bath with a capital B. You wouldn't take a bath, but you would have a bath bun, uh, yes. I guess. But whether you would travel in a bath chair uh, is an interesting question. Yeah. And I think it originally took its name from the town. But yes. it's one of those cases where I think usage would be divided. Our other expert, lexicographer or compiler of dictionaries, Stephen Bullen, kindly dressed for our theme. For the purposes of this interview, I've decided to wear a Stetson on my head. Oh, uh, well, thank you. Uh, but we did ask about the Wild West. You've got the choice. Uh, if you look in the Oxford English Dictionary, for example, they, they offer uppercase, lowercase, hyphenated, unhyphenated. As a lexicographer, the way I, I make decisions about whether to capitalise something and so on is to look through a corpus. And a corpus is a, a huge collection of... English texts that have been stored on a computer that have been indexed that give you very rapid access to all the instances of certain words. And if we look at the corpus, for example, for Wild West, we'll see that there's a good mixture, some are uppercase, some are lowercase. That's really got to be our guiding principle. If every instance in the corpus is uppercase, then we would conclude that that is the way the word is used. Personally, I would probably not capitalise Wild West. But that's because I, I rather go along with this idea that we should relax the rules about capitalisation. So, to quote another Wild West song, don't fence me in seems to be the answer. In our opening sequence in the not-so-wild west of England, we conflated two dairy farms, one in Titherington in Gloucestershire, not far from your university, I suppose, and Gittisham in Devon. Professor Coates, can you deconstruct those names? Well, they both go back an awful long way, for one thing. They're both coined in the Anglo-Saxon period, and we know, in the case of Titherington, that it means breeding farm. You have an old English word, tithrung, which means breeding, uh, or begetting, uh, I suppose. Right. Now, it's a moot point exactly what sort of breeding went on there. I mean, you, might, you might imagine sort of conspiracies to develop Jersey cows were in operation even in Anglo-Saxon times, yeah. but it's not really very clear what was being bred at all. We don't know if we're talking about grafting of plants, say, to produce better apple trees for uh, the local cider or whether we're talking about animal breeding. But on the face of it, that's what it seems to mean. Oh, that's wonderful. And what about Gittisham? Oh, Gittisham is one of those many, many Anglo-Saxon place names that has a, a word for a farm as the second part, in this case, harm, yeah. uh, the ancestor of the modern word home. Uh, and the first part is one of those very obscure Anglo-Saxon male personal names, so we believe uh, on the grounds of the evidence that comes from older manuscripts that there was an Anglo-Saxon gentleman by the name of Goody, uh, and he gave his name to this farm. Now, that, this gets very interesting, doesn't it? Because people agree on a place name and it sticks. So with this Goody, we do know that the word Goody has stuck. And Goody we probably didn't spell his name with a capital. Well, we don't know that uh, he or she could write, uh, of course. Only if he could write in Latin, I guess. Yes, in those days it would have been. And so when and how do common words describing places become names? Well, I think the answers are slightly different in the two cases. With any name, there are sort of two paths that can be gone down. I can either bestow a name on something, either one that's ready prepared, like Stephen or Richard, or made up. Yeah. But the point is that at the moment that I 
bestow it upon the person, that becomes the person's name. Uh, the other way a name can come into existence is to evolve through natural usage. And you find that very typically happening in place names. Place names very often start off as descriptions of particular places. On, on the train this morning, I passed through Swindon and reminded myself at that point that it comes from the old English words for pig hill. Ah, and um, the question remains, did someone say, I'm going to call this place pig hill? Uh, and if so, it was bestowed at that moment. That's, that's one way it can happen. The other way of doing it is illustrated by Hendon, I suppose, because we have it on record since Old English times, since Anglo-Saxon times, that the place was called, by the Old English expression, at the high hill, at Tham Heanduna. Oh. And uh, what has happened since then is that it's sort of got worn away. The at has disappeared, the the has disappeared, and you're left with the traces that prove it arose in natural usage, because you've got the n on the end of the word for high, which is a guarantee that it came from an expression which had a the in it. Right. So it's evolved from people saying, you know, we're just going to the high hill, or my house is at the high hill, and it sort of goes through a little phase until it comes out as Hendon at the other end of the historical process. It's a triumph for the theory that language is shaped by those who use it, then. Um, when enough people agree a name for a place, it sticks indelibly, like a brand to the cow. But what about name changes? I mean, places do change their names, don't they, Richard? Well, people change places' names, yes, and this has happened very often uh, across the centuries, especially when there's some murky politics in the background. So quite a few of the major cities of Europe have changed their names in the light of changes of empire, changes of political creed, and so forth. So long as they get written down, of course, they can be remembered, and if they can be remembered, they can be revived. Leningrad will never cease to have been St. Petersburg. It's part of its history, and the name will always be part of the heritage of that city, which can be known. So if the inhabitants of Leningrad, as it was, uh, want to say that it was St. Petersburg, that will always be true even if it's not true when we're talking about Leningrad, that it is St. Petersburg. Of course, now it's been reversed and it's St. Petersburg again. It's now also true that it was Leningrad and that fact will never disappear. Even old New York was once New Amsterdam Why they changed it, I can't say People just liked it better that way Take me back to Constantinople No, you can't go back Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. Why did Constantinople get the works? That's nobody's business but the Turks. The singing quartet, the four lads, with a bit of musical on a nasty. All right, another test here. It does involve a kind of place. Our moon was thought to be made of cheese. Lexicographer Stephen Bullen. You could argue that it's a unique entity like the Earth and so it should be capitalised, but you'll find huge numbers of instances of the word moon being used with a lowercase. And there's that ambiguity with all expressions of this kind. You've got the followed by some words which can potentially have only one thing to refer to. There's an absolute ambiguity about whether they're names or not. Istanbul. 
It depends on whether you prioritise referring to the thing up there, the moon, or whether you think moon is a word that describes the thing up there. These days, I think, if we write about our moon, we would put it in lowercase. But 200 years ago, almost certainly it would have been in uppercase. So there's been that shift. But when did our language don its first caps? We're familiar with the image of the medieval scribe. In a way, the first graphic designer, with his illuminated letters, his majuscules and minuscules, frontispieces, and all-round concern for the visual impact of text. Medieval capitals were reserved for titles, headings, beginnings of sentences. Then came technology. With the introduction of printing in the 15th century, capital letters extend their function so that they are used to mark uh, important words in the text. This is Professor Simon Horobin of Oxford University. Often these are nouns and ones where writers want to emphasise a word in some way. And so really by the 18th century we have a practice whereby authors rather idiosyncratically and for a particular personal effects, tend to use capital letters to stress particular words, to indicate some abstract quality or to personify some concept like truth or beauty or justice. One of the difficulties with that is that it did become difficult for printers, whose job it was to actually convert the manuscripts into printed text, to decide when a letter was capitalised or not, whether something was a personification or not. And sometimes, of course, it's difficult to tell whether a letter in somebody's handwriting is a capital or, or not. And so printers then decided that they were wasting far too much time over this issue and that it would be much more expedient for them just to simply capitalise all nouns. So now that authors were unable to convey those kinds of distinctions and subtleties using capital letters, they simply stopped using capitalisation for nouns. And so by the end of the 18th century, a system emerges whereby capitalisation is reserved for the beginnings of sentences and for proper nouns, for names, the situation that has survived today. We can see that in grammar books of the 18th century, uh, like Joseph Robertson's Treatise on Punctuation from 1785. The Hebrew and other Oriental alphabets have no distinction between great and small letters, and the Greeks and Romans for a long time made use of only capitals in their writings. It was usual with our ancestors, both in writing and printing, to begin every noun with a capital. But this custom, which was always troublesome and not in the least useful or ornamental, is now entirely discontinued, and small letters are used in all common words. So names and proper nouns only. The trouble is, to misquote Juliet, what is a name? And what is proper? Remember the lexicographer in the fancy dress, Mr Stephen Bullen, in his cowboy hat? I'd suspect that the image that conjures up uh, for most people would be a tallish hat with a wide brim of the sort that you used to see cowboys wearing when westerns were common in the cinemas and on television. But actually, the, the Stetson that I'm wearing is a kind of flat hat, the sort you'd associate with northerners and whippets or, or with Andy Cap, and it certainly doesn't fall into the common perception of what a Stetson might be. A word like Stetson gets into the dictionary uh, because it's become a sort of generic term for precisely that kind of hat with the wide brim. And people will talk about Stetsons without actually realising that there is a company, the John Stetson Company, that makes the hats. And, of course, Stetson is a trademark. 
if you mistakenly, for example, include a word in your dictionary that's a trademark and you forget to put an uppercase on it, you'll get a letter from that company's lawyers telling you that this is a trademark and that you need to conform to the standard of having an uppercase at the beginning. But sometimes they will also quibble a little bit with your definition. And I've had cases where solicitors' letters have included a definition that they want us to put into the dictionary to replace the one that we've already written. And we have to resist that, of course. What we're describing is the way people use it, not the way people think that it should be used because they decided that was the way they wanted it used. Very well. Mm. That doesn't mean in private discourse we shouldn't be relaxed about where we put caps. I am, for the purposes of the next sentence, now relaxing in a jacuzzi, wearing a trilby hat with a message sellotape to it, reminding me to eat sandwiches made at my request of granary bread. The man in the trilby ate a sandwich made with granary bread. There. Trilby is a name, of course, of a novel and a play and a character. But it's not a headgear trademark, so no cap for that hat. And sandwich isn't was a name of a place and a person, but it, like our moon, has become generic. Sellotaped. No capitals for verbs, surely, so hats off if you've got that. But jacuzzi is a trademark, so caps on for that. But as for the granary bread... Rank Hovis would like you to spell granary with an uppercase G because it's a trademarked word. Even though the word has existed in the language since about the 14th century, meaning a, a place where you store the grain, they've applied it to a particular blend of flour that they produce. And so if, for example, you go to a bakery and they're selling granary bread there, unless that's using flour from Rankovis, then technically they can't tell you that it's granary bread. You would be expected in normal journalism to observe the uppercase convention for the trademark. That is unbelievable. This um, is solicitor and intellectual property expert Sarah Ludlam. I use the word granary to describe a loaf of bread. If my husband goes shopping, I say, we'd like some granary bread. I don't mean I want you to buy a loaf of bread from a particular supplier. I mean the type of bread should be granary. And even she is surprised that this common noun to denote a specific flour and a bread is a trademark owned by Rank Hovis. So it is spelt here with capitals. Spelt. <laughs> Because that's a time. Oh, never mind. So I'm really surprised to hear that granary bread is a trademark. That's amazing. To check that, and I'm going to have to check it now you've told me, because it sounds so unbelievable, is to go onto the Intellectual Property Office website. ipo.gov.uk is a fantastic resource which tells you what's registered, who owns it, when they filed the registration, and if there have been any problems with it. So I'm looking that up now as we speak, and unbelievable, yes... There's Granary as a registered trademark. Rank Horvis is committed to maintaining high levels of awareness and demand for Granary, registered trademark. To enhance and support the brand leader, the Granary, registered trademark, logo, features on all packaging, labels and point-of-sale material. This logo acts as a seal of approval, reassuring your customers that they are buying the original and authentic Granary, registered trademark, malted brown bread. 
what about owned? Can words be owned? Yes, you can own a word, absolutely. Um, if you have a valid registration for a trademark, I must uh, clarify that a trademark is registered for goods or services. There's a specification of goods and services which is attached to a registered trademark. So ownership has limitations. But you register a trademark at the Intellectual Property Office for UK rights and you then get ownership of that word for the goods and, or services you have specified. Ownership of a word and controlling how it's used, in my world, those are not distinguishable. Ownership of a trademark or a brand is best um, controlled by registering it. You then have evidence of your ownership. You have a certificate and on it it tells you that you are the registered owner and it tells you what your ownership relates to, what goods and services you have absolute rights to use that word for. And they are absolute rights, they're monopoly rights. So you, from my perspective, you do own that word for that use but it's very important to understand it's for a particular use it's not ownership of the word in any context it's only as a trademark so we come back to the capital letters if somebody is using the word as a trademark and you've not given them permission that's an infringement and you can stop them as long as you pay the renewal fee and as long as there's not a problem with someone else's prior use of that word nobody else can use it that is your word but the nature of words that you can own or seek to own is limited in a way that appears to challenge logic they don't appear to act as words because they are forbidden to describe the product our clients want something descriptive because most business these days is run over the internet and they want to use their new trademark, their brand, in their domain name. So they're going to call their business fantasticcamerashop.co.uk and they want their customers to find their fantastic cameras. Completely descriptive, so not useful at all in terms of intellectual property protection because you can't control anyone else's use of those words to sell cameras because you're describing what you're selling. If your business is called Blue Elephant use of the words blue elephant in relation to selling cameras is your use you control how that's used if somebody paints blue elephants and sells pictures of blue elephants they're entitled to sell those works and call them blue elephants they're common words and what's interesting to a trademark lawyer about them is that they're not common if you're selling cameras so the issue is producing a, a name that's distinctive for the goods you sell and these days that can be very difficult so searching and checking what's there already is important. For a trademark lawyer, we want something distinctive. We want to blue elephants for cameras because there's no association in one's mind between blue elephants and cameras. I'm afraid that's only the basics, and Sarah throughout is talking about English and Welsh law, I should remind you. In the world of intellectual property, the ownership of names seems as important as the ownership of creative ideas. If you were to have a fantastic cake recipe and you shared it with a friend and you built a whole bakery business on your one cake recipe, if that cake recipe was then used and made by a competitor, they baked the cake following the recipe, that wouldn't be an infringement of any of your rights. If they took a copy of your recipe, that's a copyright infringement. If they sold the cake under the same name that you were selling your cakes... So we've called our theoretical cake, I don't know, Splonto. If it was a Splonto cake and you'd named it and you'd either registered that name Splonto for cakes at the IPO or you had sold enough cakes using that name to have generated goodwill and reputation, then you could stop anybody selling cakes called Splonto. It therefore appears in the world of naming commercial things and services that it's better if the name is meaningless, made up. Make up a word. Oh, that's my dream. Fantastic. Somebody comes to me with a word that doesn't mean anything in English and preferably not in another language either. So the key is to find something completely unique and 
either register it or use it with a capital letter and with preferably a little TM notice next to it to tell the world this is your trademark and you're using it to sell these goods or services. So Kodak is a terrific example because you have not only a made-up word that means nothing in English, but it's actually easily pronounceable in lots of languages and it's short, distinctive, snappy, easy to remember, perfect. On the subject of short and easy to remember, what about the letter and personal pronoun I? It was our grammarian friend Joseph Robertson back in 1785 who noticed. In other languages, the pronoun of the first person singular is usually written with a small letter. We seem to be the only people who have dignified the little hero with a capital. And that again was a result of the technology of printing helping that little hero, the letter I, not to get lost on the page. Two hundred years later, technology again made its mark. This is Ken Siegel, writer and advertising man, asked in 1998 to name a machine. Well, first of all, we were exposed to the machine, which looked unlike anything anybody had ever seen, the translucent blue, roundish shape. Um, in a world of boxy beige computers, it was totally amazing. At that time, you'll have to remember that Steve Jobs had just returned to Apple, and all eyes were on Apple to see, like, what is Steve going to do? He had a name in mind. But he wanted to call it Mac-Man. And all of us in the room scratched our heads at that one. <laughs> we couldn't imagine this company-saving computer being called Mac-Man. And he gave us two weeks to come up with a better name. So the point of that machine in a time when it was not all that easy to get on the Internet and the Internet was becoming a huge thing and more and more people were getting email, a lot of people still didn't have email, that we were going to make it easy for them. In fact, it took us two meetings uh, the first time, he hated it. The second time, he didn't hate it as much, but he still didn't like it. Those were his exact words, actually. So we went back to the office and churned and churned. And we had other names like Mac Rocket and Maxter and things like that. And Steve hated all of them. <laughs> so we brought iMac out of the bag again because we did believe in it. It was our first choice. And he uh, didn't hate it that week, but he didn't like it either. And he gave us two more days to come up with a better name. Or the threat was it would be Mac-Man. The I not only stood for Internet, but think of all the other things it stands for. It's got I meaning me. It's got Internet. It's got imagination, individual. And I Mac beget I movie and I pod, I books, I chat, I player. The power of lowercase I, I catchingly reversing all our expectations of that capital letter. Just one example of the many ways the Internet threatens orthodox capitalism. Time now to help my cousin Jack back onto his horse, as I understand good vittles, love and kissing are available at the end of our ride. But I want to borrow comedian Dave Allen's famous sign-off for the final test. Good night, and may your God go with you. Capital G? Hmm. You decide. Keep your chaps handy, as next week Stephen will be back in the saddle with the programme praising Reading Aloud. Fry's English Delight is presented by Stephen Fry, produced by Nick Baker, and is a testbed production for BBC Radio 4.